We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30 this morning. Philippians 2, 19 to 30. So if you've got a Bible, get over there. A few years ago, a student named Jack, a graduating high school student, asked his English teacher for a college recommendation letter, something most of us have done at some point. Uh, But when the teacher handed the letter back, he felt like uh, the letter was lacking a little bit. So he posted it on the internet and it it went viral as these things do. Here was the letter. I don't know how well you can see that from uh, where you are. It says, to whom it may concern, Jack is an adequate student. And then the teacher signed it. And he said, man, that that was lacking a little bit of the pizzazz that you would hope for in a recommendation letter. Now, turned out it was just a joke. The teacher gave him a real recommendation letter after that. But I saw that and I thought, man, all of us would hope that if somebody gave us a letter of recommendation for our lives, that it would be a glowing recommendation. All of us would hope that if we said, I want you to describe my life, that you would say, uh, he has a life that is worthy of imitation. She has a life that is honorable. As believers in Jesus Christ, all of us, I think, would hope that we live a life that reflects Jesus. So that when somebody looks at our life, they say, that's a life worthy of imitation because it's a life that imitates Jesus. His love, his truthfulness, his kindness, his grace. When we stand before Jesus Christ, our prayer is that as our lives are evaluated, we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because we have lived in a way that is worthy of commendation and worthy of imitation. As we look at our passage this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 to 30, Paul wrote a recommendation letter for two men whose lives were worthy of imitation. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they were two men who worked alongside Paul as he labored to share the gospel, and when it came time to send somebody to the Philippian church who would encourage them, who would help them walk closer to Jesus Christ, Paul said, Timothy and Epaphroditus are the two guys. And so he sends in his letter, in the letter of Philippi, he sends a recommendation for these two men. And here's what Paul says. He says, here are two men whose lives are worthy of recommendation. More than just adequate, their lives are commendable. More than just adequate, their lives are a living reflection of what God is calling us to do and be in Jesus Christ. Let me, let me refresh our memories again for a moment on the first part of Philippians 2. You'll remember that throughout Philippians chapter 2, Paul has urged us to have the same mindset or attitude that Jesus had. So that Jesus thought of the interests of others above himself, right? And so Paul says, you have that same attitude in yourselves that was also in Jesus Christ, And then he went on and he said, Jesus, although he was at the very highest position in the universe... He chose to set aside his rights and his privileges for people like us and for the glory of God so that we could have eternal life and so that God could be praised. And Paul says, I want you to be like that. I want you to take that mindset of humility. I want you to take that mindset of love for others. I want you to take that mindset of gratitude and reflect Jesus Christ. And and right at the end of last week's passage, you remember he says, if you do this, you will shine like stars in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
He says, if you reflect Jesus, if you have a life worthy of imitation because you are following in the footsteps of your Savior, you will shine like stars. And then he dives right in, in verses 19 to 30, and he says, let me give you two illustrations of men who shine like stars. That's why this sermon this morning, I called it shining stars, because those words are in the previous passage. But here's Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul says, these guys are shining stars. Stars, And here's what this passage challenges us to do. Even though there isn't a real direct exhortation in these 11, 12 verses, this verse or this passage challenges us to ask this question. Are our lives worthy of imitation? Are our lives worthy of imitation? Not because we are particularly good, but because like these two men, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So that as we look behind us at those who are walking in the Christian faith in the next generation and the next generation, can they look ahead at us and say, here is a model for me to follow because as that person follows Jesus, I'm going to follow them as we follow Jesus. That's the process of discipleship. We'll talk about it as we walk through this passage this morning. All of us imitate somebody. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to imitate Jesus and then imitate those who are imitating Jesus. We just celebrated seven baptisms for these precious kids this morning. And and as we were celebrating these baptisms, I thought, here are some young people who are, are, are at the beginning of their journey with Jesus Christ. And the question for us to ask is, are we as their parents, as their friends, as their co-workers in the gospel, are we modeling what it looks like to follow and pursue Jesus Christ so they can come behind us and follow and pursue Jesus Christ? Paul says, I want you to take note of Timothy and Epaphroditus because those are two men who were shining stars. And I want to provide this morning a few characteristics of these shining stars for us to emulate as we walk through the passage and to ask that question, am I living a life worthy of imitation? Who am I following and who's following me? Am I engaged in that process of discipleship? What does a shining star look like? What are shining stars? Let me, let me begin in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. He says, first of all, shining stars are centered on Jesus Christ. Down in verse 30, when he talks about Epaphroditus, he also says, Epaphroditus came close to death. Why? For the work of Christ. These two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, first and foremost, they were centered on Jesus. Why was their life worthy of imitation? Because they were imitating Jesus. And so at the very center of their lives, before they thought about their own needs, their own comfort, their own lives, they thought about Jesus. And they said, I want to have a life that imitates my Savior. I want to have a life where I'm marching in rhythm to Jesus' song. I've told you before, I was in the marching band in high school. Some of you may have been in the marching band. I played saxophone. And one of the rules of the marching band was this. When you're out marching on the field, you know who you're supposed to follow? The drum major or drum majors. 
That's, a, that's a, usually another member of the band who stands at the front or at the back of the field. And they conduct, right? And, and, and there's a head drum major and the other drum majors follow them. And as you march and as you play, you're supposed to follow the drum major. I don't know if you've ever heard a marching band where they got off beat. But so that the kids on one side of the field were playing in a different time from the kids on the other side of the field. That's called phasing, right? I'm giving you guys a musical lesson here this morning. How does it happen? It happens because instead of watching the drum major, what are they doing? They're listening to those around them, right? Remember physics, which travels faster, light or sound? Light. And so you watch the visual cue of that drum major. You don't listen to the auditory cue from across the field, especially not to the trumpets, right? Whatever you do. (laughs) You watch that drum major. And then you march in time to his or her rhythm. That's what Paul says Timothy and Epaphroditus were doing with their lives. As they marched through their lives, they marched in time to his rhythm. They said, I'm not going to listen primarily to the voices of the culture around me, but I will fix my eyes on Jesus. If Jesus says, share the gospel here, I will go there and share the gospel. If Jesus says, go to the church in Philippi and attend to their needs, I will go to the church in Philippi and attend to their needs. If Jesus says, my needs need to be subordinate to the interests of Jesus Christ, then that's what I'll do. And I will think of the interests of others above myself. Wherever Jesus marches, Timothy and Epaphroditus say, that is where we will go. And Paul says, they have calibrated their lives to Jesus Christ. Let me give you another illustration. Almost all of you in this room, you have a phone. On that phone is a clock. It tells you what time it is. Have you ever wondered, where does my phone get the time? I actually looked this up this week because I was curious. Your phone gets the time from a tower somewhere that ultimately gets the time from an atomic clock at the U.S. Naval Observatory. And it's, it's considered the most accurate clock in the world. It is said that it is accurate to one second every 300 million years. I don't know how they know that. I don't know if they have a very, very old person who has measured it. But stunningly accurate. So that, that every second, you know what your, your phone is doing? is it's, it's, it's reading that clock that is the standard. Am I on time? Am I on time? Am I on time with the absolute standard of time? Calibrating against the standard. That's what we're called to do. If you want a life worthy of imitation, you constantly calibrate against the standard. Look at the kindness of Jesus Christ. Look at the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. Look at the love of Jesus Christ. And every step you take, you calibrate against that standard. Our children, as well as the men and women who come behind us in the Christian faith, They want to see men and women who are first and foremost centered on Jesus Christ. Before you tell them anything about morality, tell them about Jesus. Before you tell them anything about what they should or should not do, begin to model for them what it looks like to center your life on Jesus. A few years ago, the Fuller Youth Institute did a research study And their goal was to figure out why do some kids continue to walk with Jesus when they grow up? 
and others don't. In other words, we're talking about church kids. Why is it that some kids in the youth group continue to walk with Jesus when they're grown, continue to engage with the church when they're grown, and others don't? Others, when they hit young adulthood, they drift away from the faith. And what they found, which won't surprise you, was that their parents' influence was deeply significant. But, but what made the difference, not in all cases, right? This is, these are general rules. You can do everything right and your kids can still walk away from Jesus. But as a general rule, what they found was this. The kids who were still walking with Jesus Christ, it was because of this. They said the single most important factor was their view of the gospel, How do parents think about Jesus? How deeply do you believe in Jesus Christ? Regardless of what you say they should do, they should not do. Regardless of where you tell them to go, regardless of what curfew you place on them. How do you think about Jesus Christ? Does your life reflect that you believe deeply that Jesus died for your sin, that Jesus rose again, and that Jesus is coming back? And do you calibrate your life against that standard first and foremost? And they said, those kids, they began to believe that their parents really believed it. So maybe it was real. So let me ask you a couple of questions. If you want your kids to engage with Jesus, to engage with the church, the first question to ask is, do you believe in Jesus? Do you know him? Or are you trying to train them based upon some model of morality that you perceive they should have, but at the center, maybe maybe you don't yet know Jesus Christ. And so the first step for your family, and the first step maybe for you as somebody who wants to lead others to know Jesus is to say, "I, I trust in Jesus Christ. Just as these kids testified this morning, you say, What I want to do first is I say I place my faith entirely in the fact that Jesus Christ offers me eternal life. Jesus died for my sins and rose again. And if you do know him, do you constantly calibrate your life against Jesus? That's hard to do. And in fact, it's impossible apart from the intervention of the Holy Spirit. But if you know Jesus, the Spirit lives in you. How do you calibrate your life against the standard? Well, you are drenched in the scripture. You open it up and you read it. What kinds of things did Jesus say? What kinds of attitudes did Jesus take toward others? How did Jesus walk through his life to honor his father? And then you get on your knees and you pray. God, make me like Jesus. Center me on Jesus. So that my life will be worthy of imitation because I'm imitating Jesus Christ. So shining stars, first and foremost, are centered on Jesus. Shining stars, listen to Paul's words, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Jesus Christ. That's the goal. First Jesus, and then we lead. Shining stars are centered on Jesus Christ. Secondly, shining stars are concerned about others. Look at a few verses. Verse 20 says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. He says, Timothy, above all of the people around him, was genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. Same with Epaphroditus. Verse 26 says he was longing for you. And was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. In other words, Epaphroditus is going to the church in Philippi because his concern for them was so great. He was sick and his primary concern was, they're worried about me. 
So Paul says, I'm going to send Epaphroditus. I'm going to send Timothy, not only because they're centered on Jesus, but because they love you. And their love for you flows from their love for Jesus. And the way that Paul puts it, he says, with all the people around me, Timothy's the only one who does what Jesus did. And, and, And his phrasing is very similar to the first few verses of Philippians 2. He says, Timothy doesn't seek his own interests but he seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. Just like our culture. In Paul's day, they were in a culture that was in love with the self. That said, first and foremost, I'm going to get my needs met. And then maybe I'll think about yours next. And Paul says, Timothy shines differently. Epaphroditus shines differently. They're concerned about others. Uh, We live in a self-centered culture. A number of years ago, I read a well-known book by Gene Twenge, somewhat controversial book, but it was called Generation Me. And the subtitle was something like, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before. And her whole premise was that over the course of the last 40 or 50 years, we have in fact increasingly become a culture that is steeped in the love of the self. And so we chase self-love, thinking it will bring us happiness, but it only brings us misery. Because it results in an emptiness at our core that we can't fill. She talks about how in the 50s and the 60s, In particular, starting with the baby boomer generation, they began to say, how can I seek self-fulfillment and individual fulfillment with my life? Even if that unmoors me from the values of the rest of the culture. But then she goes on and she says, boomers may have thought they invented individualism, but like any inventor, they were followed by those who perfected the art so that their children said, you think you're selfish? Watch this. And began to take that selfishness to ever newer levels. She says, the culture of the self is our hometown. Since we were small children, we were taught to put ourselves first. That imagery struck me so powerfully this week. The culture of the self is our hometown. In other words, we have our own little self-centered village, right? We send ourselves love letters to the post office of me. And drive around Selfville with streets named Me Avenue. The culture of the self is our hometown. She talks about as a kid in the car, hearing that song, The Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston. She asked her mom, what's that about? Her mom goes, hmm, the greatest love of all must be about loving children. She says, my mother was sweet, but wrong. The greatest love of all is loving me. That's the world we live in. That was the world Paul lived in. And he says, nobody else around me is concerned for anybody else but Timothy. And why is Timothy concerned about others? Because Jesus is concerned about others. So he says, if I can send you anybody to care for you, it's going to be Timothy. He says, you know Timothy served me as a a child serving his father. That word serve 
the same word root that we saw earlier in the chapter when it says Jesus took the form of what? A bondservant, a slave. He says, Timothy, in imitation of Jesus, served Duleo. Just as Jesus humbled himself, Timothy is willing to serve. Those in the faith who center on Jesus and are concerned for others shine like stars. Being others-centered is contagious. Sometimes when I finish preaching at the 11 o'clock service, I'll watch as many of you in this room begin to help tear everything down. You start stacking the chairs and taking down these curtains. And what, what I love to see is that over time, some of your kids have jumped in also. Right? Sometimes you've got, you've got little kids. Toddlers are grabbing chairs. And we go, man, we love the help but we don't want a lawsuit, right? So let's wait (laughs) just a year or two. But they say, no, man, if mom or dad is jumping in to serve, if mom or dad is jumping in to care about other people, if mom or dad is jumping in to facilitate other people worshiping Jesus Christ, they go, I may be three, but I'm gonna do it too. Paul says, that's a life worthy of imitation. That's Timothy and Epaphroditus. So he says, you, you look at these guys, centered on Jesus, concerned about others. Thirdly, shining stars are courageous. Look at verses 29 to 30. This is talking about Epaphroditus. It says, when he gets there, you receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Epaphroditus was willing to risk even his life to deliver a message to Paul from the Philippian church. In fact, to deliver a gift. Epaphroditus probably brought a gift from the Philippian church to Paul to support him in his imprisonment. And now he's the guy that takes the letter of Philippians back to Philippi from Paul. Paul says, here's a guy who's courageous, even in the face of sickness, even in the face of death. Epaphroditus says, I will boldly move forward because the gospel matters that much. He's willing, if it comes down to it, even to put his life at risk, his health at risk for things that are eternal. I don't believe Epaphroditus is reckless. I don't think he's stupid. I don't think he is risking himself for something frivolous. Instead, he says, nothing matters more than that men and women hear about Jesus Christ. And so he presses on, even in the face of adversity and fear. He's courageous. Most of us in this room, if you grew up in Texas, you have visited the Alamo at some point in San Antonio. It is a must-do for a Texan. And we stand in front of the Alamo, and we take pictures, and we tell our kids about the courage of the men who defended the Alamo, that even in the face of overwhelming odds, they were courageous. We remember James Bowie and Davy Crockett and William B. Travis with his line in the sand that probably never happened, but it's, it's an amazing story. One, one person we don't talk about as much, but still courageous, James Bonham, known as the messenger of the Alamo. I don't know how familiar you are with James Bonham, but uh, he was the guy whose job it was to ride to Goliad and ask James Fannin for reinforcements. 
So before the siege begins, James Bonham rides to Goliath. He asked Fannin for reinforcements. Fannin said, can't spare anybody. Sorry. So he rides back to tell Travis, there aren't any reinforcements coming. Then they are under siege. A few days later, Bonham rides through the Mexican line back to Goliath and says, please. Fannin says, nope, sorry, still. Rides back through the Mexican line to deliver the message to William B. Travis. Says, as he was riding away the second time from Goliad, he was told it was useless to throw away his life to get back to the Alamo, which was a hopeless cause. He answered back that Buck Travis deserved to know the answer to his appeals, spat upon the ground, and galloped west into his own immortality. I read that and I was like, Texas! (laughs) Right? I mean... I grew up in the suburbs, right? And uh, I only rode a horse at summer camp. And if I tried to shoot a musket, I would probably shoot myself before I shot anybody else. But I love to believe that that's my heritage, that courage, because courage is contagious. We see men and women of courage and somehow courage comes into us. Paul says, I want you to hold men like Epaphroditus in high regard because of his courage. Earlier, I mentioned that research study done by the Fuller Youth Institute. One of the other findings of their study was this. Parents whose kids walked with Jesus into adulthood were often those parents who were willing to take calculated but significant risks for the sake of the gospel. Parents who took their kids on a mission trip to an unfamiliar location. Parents who shared the gospel with a neighbor, even when it was scary. Parents who gave of their financial resources and trusted God to provide. Who did not simply say, I want you to follow Jesus, but who followed Jesus courageously. Paul says, that's the courage of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And it's the courage that we seek to imitate so that those men and women following Jesus behind us can trust in the power of God and take courage in the gospel, right? If Jesus rose from the dead, then we don't have anything to be afraid of. If Jesus is alive, there's nothing to fear. So Paul says, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, shine like stars in your love for Jesus, your love for others, and your courage. Shining stars are courageous. And then fourthly, shining stars are faithful over time. Shining stars are faithful over time. Verse 22, talking about Timothy, he says, you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy had served Paul faithfully for a long time. He had traveled with Paul. They had experienced persecution together. He had endured hardship with Paul. And he says, you know that's the kind of guy Timothy is. So I'm going to send him to you because he's going to encourage your heart. Because when you see a man like Timothy who has endured hardship, that will bear you up as well to endure hardship for the sake of the gospel. He says he shines like a star because no matter what, he perseveres. He keeps going. And again, endurance catches 
just as quitting catches. Last summer, we went to Colorado with some friends of ours, and we were uh, staying near Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, one day, our plans that we kind of originally had for the day fell through. So we said, all right, what can we do? And uh, a few of us, three of the adults, uh, decided we were going to hike a little mountain that was behind our cabin. It's called Deer Mountain. Wasn't even one of the higher mountains in Rocky Mountain National Park. It was maybe uh, 10,000 feet high. Now, for those of you who are mountaineers, you're like, if this is a story about how this is hard... I'm going to be sad at you, right? Just, just bear with me. Pretend it was hard. If you feel like, you know, I climbed 40,000 foot mountains or whatever. Just, just pretend, okay? 10,000 feet. But the guidebook we had said it was about three miles each way. So a total of six miles. So we put a few snacks in a backpack and, and some water bottles. And we're like, we'll, we'll be up there. We'll be down by lunchtime. Take us maybe an hour up, hour back, whatever, you know? Famous last words, right? You know, so, so uh, my friend Thomas, actually he has his, his uh, toddler on his back. And we're going to go up this deal and we're like, this will be a piece of cake. So it's Thomas, his wife Rachel, his toddler on his back and me, right? So we get going and, and I'm thinking this is going to take us maybe an hour. We get an hour into this journey and I'm telling you, the summit looks no closer than when we began, We're looking up and we just see like, it seems like infinite switchbacks. But I thought, I can't quit, even though it seems like it's going to be a long way, because if I quit, the level of shame I will feel in front of Thomas, who is carrying his child on his back, I'll never live it down, right? So so I got out in front and later, Thomas was like, if at any point you had said, let's turn around, I would have run back down the mountain. Okay, so, so we're, we're going, but I thought, okay, I can't quit, so I, so I get out in front, and this thing just keeps going and going and going. It was much closer to about four to four and a half miles each way than it was to three miles, and it just kept going and going and going. So I got out in front, and what I would do every few minutes, I would go, I think we're getting close. And finally, Rachel goes, are you, are you just making that up? Like, do you see anything that indicates we're getting close? I'm like, yeah, well, but what am I going to say? Like, it's a long, long ways. It's terrible. I don't know how long. I don't know. We could be on here forever. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So we finally get like to this, this sort of uh, crossroads of a, a couple of different trails and there are signs and there's a sign that says Deer Mountain Summit. I'm like, All right, there's a sign. We're close. And there's a stair and the stair is about twice as big, a, a stone stair, about twice as big as this stage. I'm like, it's just up these stairs. There were 200 of the stairs. It was like another half mile of going like this, all the way up to the top. All right, so we finally get there, and I, and I, I took a picture. It's beautiful, but I felt like I was about to die. Okay? And we still had to go down. But, but at every stage along that trek, the thing I kept thinking is, okay, I can get to the next switchback. All right, I can get to the next one. I can do one more stair. I can do one more stair. I can do one more stair. That's all I have to do. The next step, the next length, the next distance. Men and women who persevere in their walk with Jesus Christ, they wake up in the morning and they say, God, help me do today 
for how Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't get worrying about tomorrow, about the next 50 years. You say, Jesus, help me do today. Then you wake up the next day. Help me do today. Help me honor you today. Help me imitate Jesus today. Help me live a life that reflects my Savior today. Day after day after day. Paul says, that's Timothy. And there's an implied exhortation in this passage. Let that be you. If you have walked with Jesus for a while, you might be weary. If you have tried to follow Jesus in the face of hardship and disappointment and loss, you might be weary. But the challenge is this, to remember that there are people behind you. And they're looking forward and they're going, okay, I, I, see, I see her. She's right at that next switchback. I can get there. And so they round the corner and they see another one and they go, oh no. But wait, she's up there. I can get there. I can get there. And day after day, you keep going. I don't know if you've ever been at a funeral of an older saint in Jesus Christ who persevered well, faithful to Jesus, faithful to their family, growing in Jesus Christ and telling people about Jesus to the day of their death. And sometimes, although those funerals are sad because death is always sad, there's a celebration. Because they crossed a finish line and they're standing before their Savior and they're hearing, well done, well done. And it provides the motivation to take the next step. As Paul says, shining stars are centered on Jesus, concerned about others, courageous, faithful over time. As we close, let me ask a few questions. First one is this. Who are you following? Who are you following? Clearly, all of us, first and foremost, are called to follow Jesus. But is there somebody in your life that may be just a little ahead of you that you say, you know what, I need to spend more time with that person to benefit from their love of Jesus, to learn how they are walking with Jesus in the midst of trial and heartache. You may be afraid to initiate with that person. I would challenge you to do it because I can almost promise you they'd be glad to talk to you. Who are your models? Who is following you? Who's coming behind you? Are you intentionally pouring your life into the lives of others so they can know Jesus? Yes, your children, if you have children. But also other men and women in the body of Christ who might be just a little bit behind you in the journey and you can turn around and you can say, we got this, we can do this. Just another step, we can do this. Keep walking with Jesus. Who's following you? And then third and last, then, what are you modeling? Does your life reflect the qualities that Paul describes? Are we men and women who are shining like stars so that we have an opportunity to lead others closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ until the day we cross that finish line and see him face to face? Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word.
It's deeply convicting to us to read about the lives of men like Timothy and Epaphroditus who were faithful even in the face of heartache and hardship and discomfort who kept their eyes fixed on Jesus. I pray we would as well. Father, I pray we would always have our eyes open for those who are coming behind us, that we would not just tell them to follow Jesus, but we would model what it looks like in dependence upon your Spirit. Father, I pray that each day we would fill our minds with the truth of who you are and the truth of who Jesus is, and then we would drop to our knees and say, God, teach me to follow you today. And we would do that each day until we see Jesus face to face or until he returns. God, give us grace and God, give us strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.